and welcome to Strangers Stopping Strangers, podcast number 32. Thank you so much for tuning in. A big welcome back to anybody who's returning, and thanks for stopping in to anybody who's new this week. This week's podcast, I get an opportunity to hear and share the stories and music selections from Susanna Millman. We met last fall when she and her husband, Dennis McNally, were out here on the East Coast at the Dark Star Orchestra Show in Northampton, spreading the word of her new book, Alive with the Dead or A Fly on the Wall with a Camera. The book is filled with pictures and stories from the late 70s all the way up to current times. And on this podcast, Susanna brings the pictures and stories to life for us, along with some meaningful songs that resonate. It was such a pleasure getting to know her and really just such an honor to get to share uh, her stories with you on the podcast. And, you know, as always, lots of laughs along the way. Be sure to go check this book out because, you know what they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. And there are a lot of beautiful pictures in this book. So, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy, and we'll catch you next week. Well, Susanna, thank you so much for joining Strangers Stopping Strangers. I'm happy to be here, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with well, you. Um, I, I, everyone's going to be so excited to hear your story because, I mean, it's such a, a rich story, you know, with, uh, with all of the characters. And, uh, and, I mean, your book, you know, is just such a beautiful visualization with some stories behind it. So um, excited to, to get it live thank out you. there. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Well, we met, so we met in person um, in Northampton at the Dark, or, uh, Dark Star Orchestra show. So you were out and about, and, uh, and, and that was so much fun. So you, you did a bit of a fall tour? We did, we did a bit of a fall tour on the, on the East Coast, uh, starting in D.C. and uh, Pennsylvania at the Ardmore, and then a bunch with Dark Star in the New York and New England area. And by sheer coincidence, or synchronous magic, call it what you will, um, tonight uh, we'll see, it starts our uh, round two with Dark Star again uh, at the uh, un- at the University of California Theater in Berkeley for t- they're here for three nights. Oh gosh, I couldn't be more homesick if I tried right now. <laughs> I wish I could just blink my eyes and be in California. Oh my god, that's so I wish fun. you could too, but. Yeah. It is what it is. What it can is we what say? It is. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, well let's dive into your story. You know, we picked up some songs, and you know, um, again, read through the book, and there's kind of some stories. But I want I want to hear you. You know, tell tell everyone a little bit about it. So, um, you know, start in the seventies. I know, kind of in the book, you started talking about you know, sort of how your life had changed when you were traveling, and uh, let's hear a little bit about that. Um, okay, I'm one of these deadheads who got on the bus quite late, and uh, that would be in the early 70s, so I miss the days of uh, the folks like Rosie McGee, who Dennis calls the first called, and um, 
I, I went to South America to study shamanism. I was teaching psychology in New York. I was a very linear person. And I hooked up with a bunch of deadheads who were from the Bay Area, and they talked about the Grateful Dead all the time. And, uh, and there was a lot of dead music playing, and we were kind of, we were riding horseback across the Andes, and uh, life was one minute to the next with dead music in the background, and I was really into the, on, on tape, you know, on some kind of weird tape devices. I really got into the improv- improvisational, more spontaneous lifestyle, which led me to understand the Grateful Dead's music uh, a lot, a lot better. Seventy-four, I came back to to uh, the United States, and I came back to California because that's uh, where the Grateful Dead were, and I really wanted uh, my wife to hook up with with theirs, and if that was in my mind, at least strongly in the back of my mind. So that's my story in the 70s, and it all happened fairly magically in the years that followed. So in uh, came back and actually got out here. That was when they were taking they were taking their hiatus. But shortly after that, I went to I was got tickets magically to 1229.77. And I would say that that's the night I really became a deadhead, and it's also the night I met Dick and Carol Lotvala. So Dick was my first serious introduction into the world of the Grateful Dead and deadheads, and what it, you know, and the depth of what it meant to to be to be a deadhead. And I will I will add it was it was very funny. Well, a little bit later in the early eighties. Uh, I was at Dick's house in uh, West Marin, uh, and Dennis McNally, who I did not know yet, uh, Paul Grushkin, who unfortunately just passed away, were were there, and they were having this insanely academic Grateful Dead conversation. And I couldn't believe that deadheads were really into this, you know, and it was kind of the academic thing that I had gotten away from. Um, so that was that was <laughs> that was something was all I can say. And uh, in retrospect, I and I'm sure many other deadheads are very very grateful for that approach and for deadbase. Deadbase, and I do want to give a shout out to Deadbase because uh, for helping me remember a lot of uh, a lot of when I took these pictures and what song must have been playing, judging by the light and stuff like that. So God bless uh, Stu Nixon. And Mike Dolgushkin and um, and their partner in doing Dead Base. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's amazing because, you know, I feel like it is such a juxtaposition between, you know, it being a moment by moment and, a, you know, the, the, the whimsical improvisation of the music and then the technical layers that, that people right. really can. I mean, you can really go down and the, the way that the songs are, are never replicated and who's taking lead and what's going on and the way they interact. I mean, you can look at it as just from both angles and they would both be correct. You that's know? that's true. That's true. It's all it's all true. That just proves that everything that's going on at the same time is is 
is going on. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm more of a, but you get confused listening to the music play kind of a girl. I've got to be honest. I'm not the most technical girl in town. I mean, you know, I, I, I get, um, I can listen and, and pick an era and I, you know, the lyrics and the, and the songs, but, um, I, uh, I I come about it from a, more of a social aspect than a uh-huh, aspect. uh-huh no understood Un- understood I'm not musically technical either I'm technical reasonably with cameras and computers and uh but with 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 the music I leave it to the professionals like like Healy Brain Love Howard Danchik the ultrasound guys I love those guys yeah well again it ta- it takes everything to to make it complete That's, yep. Well, on this podcast, we play music, and, uh, okay. and so you gave me a list of music because, you know, I want to hear the stories, but I want to hear the music that goes with it because it all goes Absolutely. back Absolutely. So the show that you picked was this show, was uh, December 29th, 1977, and uh, you said, let's hear a little Bobby. So uh, uh-huh. we pulled out Looks Like Rain. Uh, oh, nice. Nice. So I'm going to go ahead and play that for the listeners, and then... When we come back, we're going to go into the 80s, and uh, and that's a that's a decade with a lot of meat on the bones. So I'm excited to get that's in. That's a fact. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody enjoy. Looks like rain, and then we're going to come back and uh, get to the next uh, the next the next leg of the journey. Here again. 
listening to Looks Like Rain, and, uh, and we are going to jump into the early 80s, because, I mean, that's, that's really when the magic kind of started coming down, uh, coming down more, in, more in droves for you. So, uh, so please, share, share some stories about what happened next. Well, as I, as I had said, I had already met, met Dick Latvala and Carol and got into uh, hearing a lot of music outside of shows, you know, from tapes that uh, Dick shared. And then through my friend uh, Zuni, um, who I had been in South America with, she had gone, she had gone to Egypt in, when, with, with the dead in 78, become very good friends with, with Nikki Scully. I was myself within a frog's eyelash of getting on that airplane because oh. uh, there, there was there were two seats at the last minute and uh, Zuni or Nikki called me and um, the thing was my daughter was with her birth father in South America and I had no idea where they were and if there were cell phones I might have gone to Egypt but there weren't so I didn't <laughs> uh, <laughs> although I did go a year later with Zuni Nikki and another friend, Quilly Powers. Anyway, through two things happened through my friendship with uh, Nikki and and Rock, which which was um, one was that uh, I, my daughter, um, now our daughter, me and Dennis, uh, went to um, got to meet Wavy and go to Camp Winter Rainbow, where she went from the time that she was six and had a mop on her head 
and was a nurse in the old clown's home in the year 2020, coming up, uh, saying, shut up and eat your protein pellets, wavy gravy. <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. and so um, the wavy thread of my life developed, which is very oriented toward music and charity and and goodness and giving and compassion and so forth, and the, and the kids' camp, which was just a great thing for the children. Uh, and also the kids' room uh, at dead shows. And I also had a business at that time importing clothing from Bali. Zuni and Nikki had a business importing things from Egypt. This is in the early 80s. We shared an office space on Marquardt Street in San Rafael. Now, that was right down the hill from where Rock and Nikki lived. And the and the downstairs apartment of the place that that thing lived was occupied by none other than Jerry Garcia. So Jerry, not uh, you know Jerry, being at that time a bachelor, and not cooking too much for himself, would come up and have dinner with the Scullies. And I often, you know, had the the pleasure and privilege of joining them for dinner and, you know, and got to know Jerry a little bit. And what a great guy is, is is all I can say. He was so funny and so knowledgeable about film, about music, about all of the arts, very acerbic. You know, just and just a very, very open human being. Just a just a wonderful guy. I mean, you know, he, despite any, you know, all of his personal demons, I sort of believe that if he could have played music in a in a little hole in the wall, maybe with Khan, any time he wanted to, you know, if he could have just given up being Jerry Garcia and gone out in public and played music, he we might have had him around for longer. But that's that's just you know, my, my wishful thinking. And one thing that surprised me about him was that, um, I thought, well, my my highest offering is a really good bottle of red wine. Uh, he did not like red wine. He liked, he didn't drink wine. He just liked the sweet stuff like black Russians with Kahlua and cream. Anyway. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's so, it's so interesting to think about it like that because, you know, you know, I've read, you know, I, I read things about him and, you know, obviously follow, you know, about his life and his music. But I mean, it's been said he was a reluctant leader. And I think that just kind of that, that, as you're saying that, that's kind of what plays to mine, you know, to me is the, there's the reluctant leader that he didn't want to necessarily be this person that people were following, but because he was special, it just happens, you know, whether it was counterintuitive or not. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, he had a charisma to him that really made him, I mean, in my opinion, humble opinion, a very, very special person of the, of the 20th century. An unintentional leader, as you were just saying, reluctant, yeah. unintentional, reluctant yeah. unintentional leader. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Pied Piper, you know, without yeah. really, without even really realizing it with it. I have a visual of my mind of the Pied Piper with the uh, the community, you know, you know, all all following the music. And, and, uh-huh. And, uh-huh. Know, as a, yeah, yeah, that's so my, my mental thought. The community amazed me. OK, because uh I had never in my life been in a place where everybody was for something and there was nothing that they were against. They were just for, and that was 
really win-win and remarkable and the relationship between the dead and the audience always has has been uh that kind of win-win relationship and you know i in various places jerry enunciated uh, that that you know that very thought uh i was really impressed with uh you know with with the community and i will also add about the kids room at that point in the early 80s rock was my uh sponsor and way of getting into shows and rock could get himself into trouble and sometimes when rock was in trouble i would get into shows by and backstage by being season's mom to the kids room (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um and uh, there you know mickey has this great quote about how yeah they they watch the kids so we can play the music and uh it was also you know the dead had the grateful dead shows both front and backstage have always been you know filled with with uh, small ones and a family atmosphere and that's a an, an excellent quality of the whole scene in my opinion as as well oh, I couldn't agree with you more absolutely I uh, I was a teenager when I busted onto the scene but uh, I definitely even just uh, as recently as seeing that the, the uh, dead and company show in Saratoga my husband and I were standing behind this Maybe it was like three families that were all together and there must have been, you know, I don't know, 12 to 15 kids between the ages of, you know, baby and, and maybe 11. And uh, and uh, just so much fun watching the kids and they're in the wagon and, you know, they're just, uh-huh, they're just, they're just uh-huh. being kids. Like it's just like a little playground for them, like doing their thing and, you know, dancing, then fighting over, you know, the glow stick <laughs> or you know, whatever, whatever kids do, you know, and uh Alive and well, you know, and it's uh, such a huge, it's just, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Well, let's, yeah. let's hear some music, because then I want to get into the mid-80s. Um, okay. So the next song that you selected comes to us from the Berkeley Community Theater, which must have been, oh, I'm sorry, no, it comes from the Warfield. The Warfield, right, the Warfield. right, right, no, the no, Warfield. No, no. The Warfield, and it was the uh, set of shows that they did in 1980 and uh, so this is a fun tell us a little bit why you picked this and about um, how easy it was to pick one concert after the other because of a certain circumstance the first set of this long run at the warfield was always acoustic and jerry insisted on ending it with with ripple and in some of the shows you would hear bobby trying to get something else happening some other song you know one more saturday <laughs> i mean you know whatever a bobby song and uh, or don't ease me in or uh, whatever and uh, but jerry always insisted on in ending that first acoustic set with with ripple and of course it's one of the most beautiful dead songs so that's part of why i picked it Oh, absolutely. Well, I was picking it. I think first we talked 1010, and then I was like, or 1011, and you're like, you can pick any of those shows. They ended with uh, Ripple Acoustic at the end of the first day <laughs> for the whole run. So I found a nice copy, and I did pick 1011, so the October okay. 11 from the Warfield. So uh, let's go in and hear this, and then we're going to come back and, uh, and, uh, and, and hear a little bit about the mid-'80s. Okay.
back from listening to the beautiful acoustic ripple from the Warfield. And uh, and now that was 1980, and we kind of dipped a little bit into the early 80s. But I love that you have, you know, a big section in your book early on that says the 80s. So I want to jump into that decade with you right now. Okay, yeah, I divided the book up, you know, into three sections on stage off stage backstage and uh uh in rough in rough chronological order and in the 80s I was the time I really got close to the band closer to the band because uh, uh one time in 84 um I had been going to shows and so forth and one day Jerry not at a show, uh, probably at Scully's house, said to me, hey, man, you and McNally ought to get together. Now, Dennis had just started working as the publicist for The Grateful Dead. He had, he had already been the historian. I had met him. Dick had originally brought him over to my house. Uh, he got along great with my daughter. He helped, he helped her write her English papers. She went to two, she's a double Ivy and she writes grants for nonprofits now. And I think a lot of that is Dennis's wonderful influence. But, you know, we, we were, we were just friends. I had kind of given up on, uh, men and relationships at that point in my life and, trying to keep a steadier keel, but then Jerry says this to me, hey man, you and McNally ought to get together. So I thought, well, why not give it a try? And here we are um, 31 years later. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Celebrated (laughs) Valentine's Day last night. That's right. (laughs) Still still the bloom is still on the rose. uh, Uh, Yes, yes, yes. Uh, You know, like roses, it has its seasons, but, (laughs) but, you know, the bloom is... There's always a thorn here and there. There's a thorn here and there, but you just kind of pick them off, you know. Okay. Right. But, um, so, before... Four, um, and I asked Jerry to walk me down the aisle because my dad had died when I was young, and my surrogate dad, my friend Zuni's father, was out of the country. So I thought, well, you know, Garcia's kind of responsible for this. Uh, I mean, I had only been hippie married before that, not legally. Um, what, and, and he agreed to do it. I told him he could walk on water because uh, we, we got married at a club called the Oasis, and it had a covered swimming pool. So we did <laughs> kind of walk on water. <laughs> but, but, but before, uh, my funniest story before... Uh, which was kind of ripe a couple of months before we were married in June of 85. It was the Grateful Dead's 20th anniversary at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. And the Greek Theater is such a great venue. It was the band's favorite venue and so many press conference, I had the great good, uh, ironically great good fortune of standing next to a total doofus who raised his hand and said, I understand you guys are all on drugs all the time, especially when you play. Are you on drugs now? Dead silence. (laughs) He He asked the question again. This time, a little bit louder. This time, Jerry says, you know, I see his lips moving, but I don't hear anything. So 
the doofus asks the question again, this time really loud. And they all turn their heads, you know, to stare at him in aghast amazement. And, um, and since I was right next to him, I snapped the picture. So it looks like they're all looking at me with this really, you know, intense expression on their faces. And that was, that was what was going on, uh, during that photograph. And the other special thing to me about that photograph is how the five of them, uh, Jerry, Mickey, Billy, Phil, and Bobby are all sort of together. And Brent, there's a separation with Brent, and it kind of was indicative of the psychic separation that was always there with the keyboard players, particularly during, during my time. And sad because I, I like Brent a lot, and uh, he 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 was my guy during during the eighties, and so. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's it's probably one of my favorite pictures in the book because you know they're all giving just this baleful stare, but they're uh-huh. kind of, but they're kind of like you can see some. Um, they're laughing and serious at the same time. That's like, there's right. There's laughter in their eyes, but they're stone face at the same time. Right. You know, right. conveying this juxtaposition of like "fuck you," but we're gonna smile all at the same time. That's, that's a great yep. picture. Yeah, it's all there. It's, it's, all, it's there. all there. Absolutely. No, it's that's awesome. I love that. Well, while we're 85, and you, I mean, and the song you picked, I mean, all the songs are are, are beautiful, and all of the songs, the the lyrics resonate. But um, the next song that we're gonna play from that time was actually in Berkeley, Berkeley Community Theater, which I announced a few minutes ago, um, and it was in March, so March 9th, 1985, and the Wheel. And um, I mean, gosh, that song is just so poignant to what's happening in your life at this time. Exactly, exactly, and uh, I, I will add that dur- dur- that during that that set of shows, uh, Dennis did put took my name on the guest list like he had promised to. So that was the first test, okay, before taking Jerry up on his suggestion. And uh, Dennis told me that he would take me to a special place in the building that I couldn't get to otherwise. Um, so he took me way, way, way up into the rafters, but it was all very quick that it happened. He said, come on, we're going to go now. And I had a wide angle lens on my camera. And so the, the, the guys were very, were very tiny little figures on the stage because it was a long way away. So that got me into starting to do double exposures because I, I zoomed in on the skeleton rows and on the lights. And, uh, at that time, used a slide duplicator to, to, to do this much easier in Photoshop, I will add. But uh, anyway, my life was changing and the wheel was turning, yes. Yep. You were bound to cover just a little more ground. Bound <laughs> to cover just a little more ground, yep. Fantastic. Well, let's hear it. After we talk about a song, I always get excited about wanting to play it because um, then I start humming it in my mind and uh, figure everybody wants to hear it. So we're going to go in and play that. And then when we come back, we've got a couple more stories and a couple more songs. Okay.
Well, back to loosening to the wheel, and you and Dennis are married now, and um, so legally family, and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about, like, the deadheads, you know, in the community before, but uh, so now so now you're part of the family. Tell me, uh, tell, tell everyone, what, what's that uh, like? Well, it, it was it was amazing and wonderful. I, re- I realized the enormity of it when... First in the Bammies in in eighty eight, everybody everybody was there, and it was multi generational. There was Eileen Law and and Cassidy Law, Basha Razine and um, Melissa Razine, and and so on. There were the sound guys. There were there was um, Cameron and John McIntyre management guys, uh, and Dennis was the publicist. And historian, but at that time I had let go of the historian was was publicist. It was uh, it was really it was really remarkable. Uh, it gave me I, I kind of at that time got the idea that I had this terrific access and I should be documenting this, never to be never to be intrusive or violate anybody's privacy or secrets or anything like that, but to just share the good family nature of of the whole thing. And and Gerilyn Brandelius uh, was one of my inspirations for doing this with her Grateful Dead family album book, which I have a few pictures in. But, um, but, you know, at the, the late 80s, I kind of took it on myself to be a documentarian of of anything that I could around that scene, and there were quite a few things that I could, and one of them was to be a still photographer for one of the days at, in the Hell in a Bucket video shoot, and that uh, and that was really fun with everybody dressed as devils. And Steve Parrish having makeup put on, and you know it was it was performance, so he couldn't tell me to get away with my camera. Steve was really <laughs> the crew were not fond of being photographed. The crew were not the sweetest guys in the world, you know. I mean that they they were on the stage. They did own the stage. That was that was true because the band didn't want to deal with it, so they left it to they left it to the crew. And uh, Dennis often said that the crew tolerated me because I was like an ant that carried more than its own weight in camera equipment. <laughs> also being um, being up close, you know, got me looking at the different looks between the guys in the band while they were playing. So I have this whole section called WTF Bobby, which is Jerry Bobby shots with Jerry giving very, you know, with Bobby doing wild Bobby things and Jerry giving him various looks of WTF, amazement, amusement, laughing. So I have four or five pages that I, I edited Bobby Jerry photos into. On, oh, I, on that I love theme. those pages. Oh, those are such <laughs> those are such good pages. And then you have the um, gosh, I mean the p- picture that's really famous is the um, is the making the silly face picture, right? With the uh, with the Jerry with the the, the the tongue out, you know, smiley face that's left in that that little group, right? With Bobby and Jerry sitting at a yeah. table. Sitting at the table, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that that's not in that group. The WTF is all on stage pictures. The okay. um, 
That one is, I think it's 89. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I know it's at Cal Expo. And for some reason, there was an impromptu press conference with Bobby and, and Jerry. I got to be there and Ken Friedman and John Werner. Uh, who were Ken was the Bill Graham photographer, and John Werner is a great guy, great photographer, very close with Mickey, done a lot of work with Mickey. Um, you know, and somebody probably said, Give us a smile, Jerry, and he gave that look, you know. <laughs> Such a great picture. Oh, I just love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. It makes me smile just even. Yeah, no, he was, he was there. He was interactive. I mean, he wouldn't necessarily. You know, give you the trite thing what you that you wanted, but he would give you something wonderful. <laughs> and uh, Jerry was, I don't think, that comfortable with his physical image, and he did not like pictures of himself. Nonetheless, once he was there, um, he was great, and uh, and you know, like a- any time he saw me on the stage or in the photo pit. He would, you know, he would give me a smile or a look or or, or something, and I, I felt very acknowledged. I felt wonderful about that, and um, also got some great pictures out of it, like the one twenty six ninety three Jerry in the gray T shirt singing Gloria in the encore, and that was, you know, that was access that I got to be there because it wasn't the first three songs, and uh, it was it was the encore. Amazing. I mean, he just has that. I mean, all of the pictures are just that, that benevolent teddy bear, smiley, you know, this like wise, smiley teddy bear uh-huh. feeling about it. You know, and then you have, to your point, the juxtaposition of Bobby, who, you know, in the 80s, I mean, he was the rock star, you know, so he's got his <laughs> right. short shorts and his hairs, you know, you got the... I mean, he had all kinds of hairstyles, the pink guitar. I mean, they're just, you know, there is so much to what the fuck and laugh about because they were such a juxtaposition that just kind really? of made it, you know. I mean, really? so much fun. Well, I, I it's funny. I, I was, uh, so I was in high school, 89. I was uh, in junior year in high school, and I can vividly picture my childhood bedroom, my teenage bedroom, and I had like a big tie-dye tapestry. And then I have the picture of Bobby at frost with the pink guitar and the black shirt you know uh-huh, like, like uh-huh. A, it was like a glossy eight by ten maybe not a poster but you know like a full-size picture and I just totally laugh at the idea that you know instead of whoever was the you know teen beat you know guys at the time you know whatever it was menudo or you know whatever it was like I had like 44 year old Bobby Weir you know so. Well, you're you're approximately my daughter's age, I guess, and uh, uh, so she was really into Peter Gabriel at that time, I think. Yeah, I uh, I mean that was all. I, I had the Bobby picture up that little, uh-huh, that little, eight, uh-huh. that little eight by ten. Of, you uh-huh. know, there was no there was no Bobby posters like the Farrah Fawcett or the Peter Gabriel. There were no posters, so the the eight by ten glossy just had to do it, I guess. You know, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I wasn't a big enough market share to make a poster. But um, so much fun. Well, there's one other. So the next song we picked kind of goes into another story. So I want you to tell us a little bit about you had mentioned, you know, philanthropic uh, um, endeavors and, uh, you know, the got involved with the rainforest. And in um, 88, after after their great success with with within the dark, the world of the dead expanded and they 
met a, a man named Randy Hayes, who uh, became a deadhead, wasn't really at the time, but Randy uh, was the ED of the Rainforest Action Network, and he gave me the great history of how they got uh, of how they got involved uh, with dinners at Bobby's house, with the rainforest action, with the rainforest uh, concert to uh, save the rainforest, and and the environmental movement. And there are two really good quotes from Jerry uh, about this. One that okay, the dead and particularly Jerry are historically apolitical, and sure. just did not like getting into politics at all. Jerry said, no, 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 this is not politics. This is survival. So that was, that was one, that was one, one thing. And then somebody asked him why they were doing this. And he said, look, somebody has to do it. And it's really pathetic that it has to be us. <laughs> very, very poignant. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So they had this big benefit, uh, at the rain, at Madison Square Garden in 1988 at the, at the end run of the shows. And Jerry was very, um, you know, pra- pragmatic in suggesting that they do it the last night when everything would be in place with the catering and the trucks and, you, you know, and they wouldn't have to have anything extra in terms of expense. So more money could go to the organization, which by then had become three organizations, Rainforest Action Network, Cultural Survival, and the third organization is Greenpeace. Fantastic. Well, so the next song that we picked to play, uh, you know, came out of the same background philosophy, and it was um, Barlow wrote, with with friends, we can run. So tell me a little bit about this pick from Shoreline. Well, this song was really moving and really poignant to Brent. Uh, Brent sang it, I mean, because Brent, the Grateful Dead family, was growing at that time in terms of children, but Phil had two small ones, and Graham and Brian, and uh, Brent had two two daughters. So uh, we don't own the world, though we act like we did. It belongs to the children of our children's kids. And he just pours his heart out in that, uh, singing that song in June at Shoreline, and then he was going to pass so shortly after that. I mean, the, adding to the tragedy of the whole thing of what's happened to the environment and what happened to Brent. But it was it was very moving that that they carried that they carried on the thread from from the benefit at Madison Square Garden with 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 creating this song, although it was not a favorite of Deadhead. It's such a beautiful song. And, you know, you and I talked briefly about this before. What's interesting is, you know, what was, you know, what was played then or what was thought about then in the, in the late 80s or the 90s and now going forward, uh, gosh, you know, 25, almost 30 years later. And, and I think that Brent would be really happy to know that it is definitely in the rotation when people look back and think about, things that were meaningful and, and where uh-huh, uh-huh, so yes. I think this is the third, it's definitely the third, it might be the fourth time this song has been played on my podcast. That's, you know, that's, that's saying something for pick your top three songs, you know? So, right. I mean, so the imprint has been made in the consciousness, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, that much later on and, and that's beautiful, right? You know, that, it, yes. that it's had that impact and that, you know, as somebody who's talking to people in 2000, 17, you know, it's, um, 
it's 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 around and it's strong and it's made its impact. And, and that's I think right. That that's it, right. You know? And we got to keep working on it. We do. And uh, we and do. We, we, it, so. Yeah. You know, Jerry asked Randy Hayes, and uh, after this had happened, um, he said, "Hey, man, give me a bunch of your business cards because I want people to talk to somebody who really knows about the environment because I am getting more questions about this than anything else." Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, we don't, again, we don't need to get into where we are now, but, um, but we need to keep, keep playing the song and, and hearing it and, and going forward. Well, let's everybody enjoy listening to Brent sing We Can Run from Shoreline Amphitheater on September 29th, 1989. And we'll be back with a couple more stories and another song. Enjoy.
listening to We Can Run, and now we are in the early 90s. So, uh, so let's, uh, so there's, I guess, some really amazing stories about, um, in your book about the early 90s. So tell us a bit about that. Well, my favorite thing in the 90s was, involved Mickey and the Giotto monks. Giotto monks are these guys that can sing a chord in, in their throat at the same time, which can't be done, but they can do it. And uh, they, wow. they're kind of the Dalai Lama's personal choir. And um, Mickey hooked up with them, and uh, Mickey, together with Dennis, uh, promote, uh, like promoted their concert so that they made money in the, in the United States. And in 1991, Mickey did a rec- uh, recorded them at, at his house in Sonoma. Uh, my favorite picture in the book from that is Mickey with a vacuum cleaner, because Mickey <laughs> respected the bunk so much that he vacuum the carpet for them himself and uh you know and he has this look on his face in the picture oh my god i'm mickey hart and i'm vacuuming the rug it's it's delightful (laughs) but you know he had a really 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 sincere love and caring for them and and their and their tradition and another one of my favorite pictures in the book is uh, him wiring up the the head of the head monk, uh, uh, wiring up, putting the earphones on and wiring him up for for sound. And again, they uh, I saw them again at Mickey's house in. Um, in 95, uh, and Jerry and his then wife, uh, Deborah Coons Garcia were there and Governor Jerry Brown because oh, wow. Carol, Mickey, Carol Horbach Hart, Mickey's wife, wanted the governor to see this grove of redwoods that she wanted to have saved. She, she was running the open space nonprofit in, uh, at, at that time, maybe still is, but certainly was at, at, at that, at that time. So I have some wonderful pictures of them from 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 that day, which was which was just so sweet. Seeing the monks paddling around in the little lake, riding their bikes, chanting, giving out the white scarves or katas to the people who were there. Seeing Deborah playfully choke Jerry with a scarf, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, also, also in in the nineties, uh, having access to uh, the vault uh, as a photographer to photograph uh, first Dick and then later on David Lemieux. So that was another special thing for me in in the nineties. Yeah, no, I yeah. That, that, the music. I mean, having the music in those hands and and really knowing what to do with it is. Um, 
has uh, has really been you know has been everything for future for future mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the organization and um, and the picks of the of the songs and um, and Dave has certainly taken um, done a great job with that that role that Dick began so it's so appreciated from the the Deadheads for sure absolutely absolutely you know and another. Um, a medium. There's a great quote from Ansel Adams about his negatives being stored at the University of New Mexico, and he goes, "Well, that well, they're templates. They're for the future. They're for other people to to play with, you know, and to make their own images from." And uh, and I think of Dead and Company when I think of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that and that brings me to. Um you know, the, the last, the end of the book, I just, I loved the chapter at the end where you had all of like the amazing celebrations and things that happened, you know, post the mid nineties. I mean, the weddings, Bobby's wedding and new musicians that came in, the picture with Stu Allen and, uh, and the kids all grown up, you know, you, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, I mean, it's so cool. Um, I thought that was so special. Thank you. Yeah. I am back being a, a, a fan of Dead and Company. I mean, I kind of dropped out of it for a number of years. There are a lot of politics that developed around the scene without without Jerry's charismatic moral compass. Kind of thought, well, I had it great for a while and onward to other things. And then Dead and Company happened, and I felt the same the same wonderful magic all over again, and I can't wait to see them this spring. Oh, so, are you going to be at Shoreline? Oh, you betcha. Well, I'll see I, you there, huh? I will see you there, yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm, well, I'm looking outside in the New England February, and I can't even tell you how all eyes are on you right now. <laughs> can't even tell you. Well, we have one more song to play, um, so let's let's play this. And this, I mean, the, again, the lyrics, all the songs you picked, I mean, so beautiful and full circle. So tell us about the last pick for the song from uh, June 1990. Is, 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 uh, is Stella Blue, and that's my favorite Grateful Dead song, so that's what I want to go out with. And all the years combined, they melt into a dream, and... That kind of says it. That kind of says it all. And uh, God bless, you know, bless Hunter for his brilliant lyrics. Barlow too for those he contributed. But you know, this in this case, it's it's Hunter and say uh, pay on to the to the guitar. Stella Blue is a guitar and and the music and makes me think of Jerry. Yeah, no, it's so beautiful. And, you know, in perfect all things that touch, you know, the dead and the family and all aspects past, present and new. I love how we started off this conversation talking about how we met at Dark Star Orchestra and how you're going tonight. And we're ending with the show at Shoreline and had just said that hopefully we that we will see each other in June. At yes. Shoreline. So that is a completely organic, full circle conversation that starts off. You know, where we met yes, and finishes yes. where we'll see each other again. So um, Yes. I, I I love the way that just happens every time. I love you the know? way I love the way that just happened happened too for our conversation <laughs> and the fact that it's happening. 
Yeah, no, it's again. I, 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 I always say to my kids, I do believe in magic and, uh-huh. and, and the Grateful Dead and not just the Grateful Dead, but the dead and the deadheads and the community and the energy and all of the lyrics and, you know, past, present, future. That to me is, uh, is evidence of magic when you just look for it. So uh-huh. I don't know. That's, that's how I feel. And I'm sure you do too. I do too. Yes. Well, so let's, that being said, I don't think that we could end with anything more special than the song. So let's do the traditional sign off goodbye, and then I'm going to go into Stella Blue, and then uh, and then that'll 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 wrap up the podcast. Okay, okay, Stacy, that's Jerry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I, I'm sure I'm going to be so happy to hear your stories and uh, and have fun tonight, and I, I can't wait to see you in June. Okay, it was really, it was great. It was great being on the podcast with you, and uh, thanks for inviting me to share my stories. And for everyone listening, the book, I am going to put the links onto the uh, onto the website, but just do, do a quick plug on where to find it or any, any, any pertinent information that people need to know. Okay, okay, it's called Alive with the Dead, A Fly on the Wall with a Camera. Mickey has written the foreword. Dennis has made some, con- uh, some contributions to it uh, in writing. And um, it's 25 years of, uh, of, of my photos and of being a fly on the wall with a camera. And you can find it um, um, on my website, which is Mamarazzi, M-A-M-A-R-A-Z-I. Dot com. So you can buy it directly from me, uh, or you can uh, buy it on dead.net. Well, there you go. Well, I'm going to put the, uh, the links onto the website with this. But for anyone who's not going to the page, who's just listening to this podcast, I want to make sure to get all the particulars out there, um, out there on the airwaves. So okay, there, thank there. you. I love my book, and you signed it. So yay. okay, okay, I'm 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 happy. I'm happy that that you do. I had so many great memories, and you know, I really wanted to share them. So I'm glad yeah. I've done that. Well, everybody, enjoy listening to Stella Blue from June seventeenth, nineteen ninety, at the beautiful Shoreline Amphitheater, and uh, and thank you so much for tuning in. Bye. Bye. <laughs>
from a guitar
Stopping strangers 
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.